Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI 101, Dan McGuinness and I talked about the road toward unification taken by the dozens of German states in the 19th century, from a vague economic and cultural concept to a very real and powerful political force under the guidance of Prussia. In this episode, statesman Otto von Bismarck will finally succeed in the official founding of the new country of Germany and begin the delicate task of establishing its place within Europe. Let's begin. This is HI 101. I'm here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And last time we talked, we were talking about Otto von Bismarck and his machinations within Europe to sort of unite Germany against the common enemy being France. And when we left off, I believe France had just declared war against Germany. Now, this was over a matter of succession in Spain, which is kind of a weird reason for France and Germany to be going to war, but something something international politics europe in the that air time period and notice that this is the kind of thing that they were trying to avoid by creating sovereign statehood you don't get involved in other states affairs because when you get involved in other states affairs war happens and this was something that had come from the treaty of westphalia in 1648 this is something that had come from the congress of vienna in 1815 stay out of everyone else's affairs and everybody will be happy but this, this power vacuum in Spain sort of forced other countries to get involved in Spain. We've got to figure out the Spain issue. And as a consequence, it gave France a reason to go to war with Germany, which Bismarck was more than happy to take up. He had been looking for a common enemy to unite all these Germanic states against. And here it was. Let's fight France. And still almost purely in the service of making a unified Germany. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he had, there were certain other goals he had in mind. There were a couple of territories that are kind of sandwiched in between France and Germany that have switched sides a number of times. And he, see, he saw those as German people who needed rescuing. But ultimately, in Bismarck's mind, he was a Prussian first and a German second. And he saw the unification of Germany as being the advancement of Prussia. He certainly wasn't afraid of a good war. In fact, he had started several in the last five years. He was fine with them. Yeah, okay. But, like we had talked about with uh, Clausewitz, he saw it as an extension of political power. It was just a different way for political entities to interact. 
and it was the most straightforward one but also the most unpredictable one now a thing that Clausewitz kind of talked about was that war isn't an art and war isn't a science and people will try and tell you both of those things but that's not true war is a social exercise war is purely an interaction between human beings there's no sort of symmetry as there is in art there is no structure as there is in science when it comes right down to it it is two people and they are interacting as human beings and as human beings always have and Bismarck knew this and appreciated it and recognized just how unstable that is so it's not as though he was eager for war and he had that that famous speech where he said that the interests of Germany would be forwarded uh, by blood and iron what he was saying wasn't we're going to kill everyone he was actually referring to two things one was prussia's iron industry it was literally iron that he was talking about we will beat them through economic means and through production means and by blood he meant we are we are willing to use the means of our production if we need to we will defend ourselves we will we are willing as a people to put our vitality towards the furthering of prussian interests blood sweat and tears yeah yeah exactly blood and iron came across as very bellicose (laughs) people didn't much like it but that's not really what he meant by it he wasn't saying war at all costs he was saying if we need to but we have other means as well the franco-prussian war to put it mildly didn't go well for france in the first month the prussian army I should say at this point the German army because it was the United German army that he was fighting with here. It wasn't just the Fr- the Prussians. He got all these tiny states to contribute to the German army. He created a united German army to fight against uh, France. A coalition of the willing. You could call it that, but not not an actual state yet. Not at all. Not at all. Within the first month, they captured Napoleon the Third. Oh. As well as. Both of the major French armies. Okay, that sounds that sounds like it could go better for France. Could, could have could have had better things happen. You know, I think France gets kind of a kind of an unfair reputation when it comes to warfare, because you know Napoleon was a pretty great warrior. Like, yeah, he he lost at the end, but he did he did do a pretty good job. Everything before that, France was the preeminent army on. On the well, I shouldn't say on the earth, but definitely within Europe, they were incredibly formidable. But they kind of got on a bit of a losing streak in the last hundred and fifty years, and they have not let it down. Just, just unlucky. Things keep happening. It's almost never been their fault. Even when you look at what happened to them in World War One, I mean, the battles were just being fought on their home soil. World War Two, that that was just built their fort in the wrong place. Yeah, it was just forts. It was just a mess. If it, anyways, we're getting far off topic. Poor France. Basically, the rest of the Franco-Prussian War was an extended siege against Paris. They didn't end up taking Paris before the end of the war. They they actually held out for quite a long time. But I mean, once you've lost both of your armies and your leader, once your siege is at your capital and your capital isn't on the border, it's a big problem. <laughs> You're in a losing position. It's hard to generalize things like this, but German people, when you look at sort of the German nationality, they got a bit of a rush out of beating the French so fast and so hard. 
national like feelings of 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 nationality were running very very high during the franco-prussian war they were looking at this and kind of going we finally feel like we've actually made it on the world stage they don't feel like a a third-rate power anymore because france was the guy to beat and they were beating them in the midst of all of this they stopped in at versailles and in the hall of mirrors Wilhelm I was proclaimed German Emperor. If there was one room in the world that I wish I could just see all of the things that had ever happened in, it's the Hall of Mirrors. The number of world-changing decisions that happened in that place is, is unbelievable. And this is one of them. He was proclaimed German Emperor. And in doing so, he, he actually abdicated the throne of um, Prussia. And there was a new king of Prussia, his, his cousin. Oh, so they didn't they didn't dissolve that part of the monarchy, that that part of the government of Prussia. No, and actually, in in making him emperor of, or sorry, German emperor, they were very specific on the wording: German emperor, not emperor of the Germans, because that would imply people like Austrians as well, but German emperor. They made Germany, and they gave an emperorship to him. Exactly. He is an emperor and he is German. Let's let's not get all fancy about this. So he was made emperor and in the process of doing so, the country of Germany was founded. They didn't think a lot about what that was going to look like exactly. They were going to wait until the war was over to deal with all the specifics. Let's just say that Bismarck had a pretty good idea of how he wanted this to look. Do we know why they chose to crown him before the war was over? Versailles has quite a bit of import. There's a lot of sort of historical gravitas that goes along with that place, and they were there anyways. And it was a very calculated move in that they felt like there was never going to be a better chance than when they had the French on the run. And and what better way to dump on the French than use their own former glory palace, the seat of the Sun King, the crown their new emperor. That. And Bismarck was very interested in the idea of the founding myth. He believed very strongly that the story of how a nation comes to be is extremely important for the people within the nation because it gives them a common thing to be proud of or to like, even just a thing to know. The fact that they all know that this is where the country I live in came from. And it is as a conquering people, you know, pushing back the French invaders. Let's keep in mind, this is a war that France started. So that makes them look pretty good too. Good work, Bismarck. They founded this nation in the process of defending German soil against the foreign invaders. It was a pretty good time to start a country. There haven't been many better ones. I can't blame them. If I were in Versailles, I'd be a little tempted to form my own country too. It's it's very it's it's hard not to. They say you walk in there and you just get overwhelmed with this feeling of uh, declaring sovereignty. Yep. There's not a lot of other stuff to say about the war. To be perfectly honest with you, it was over so fast. I know I kind of teased it a little bit. Alsace and Lorraine, which are the two main territories that switch a lot between France and Germany, were surrendered to Germany actually against Bismarck's wishes. He didn't want them back. 
but I thought he was going to defend them. Well, that's what he told everyone. <laughs> Bismarck. What Bismarck says and what Bismarck wants are often two very different things. He actually believed that keeping Alsace-Lorraine as sort of a buffer between France and Germany was a good idea because it kind of keeps the Rhine River as a solid border between the two countries, and he felt that that's the way it should be. He was also worried that by taking Alsace and Lorraine, it would foster some resentment within France, and they would see this as a reason to basically fight them another time. They took our land, we'll have to take it back. And he was worried that if they went as far as to take that territory from them, it would create a a lasting enemy. They also exacted reparations upon France. They did some math. They exactly matched, but considering for population, they exactly matched Napoleon's reparations on Prussia in 1807. And that's not going to come back against the Germans in the future (laughs) at all. That one, again, was definitely pandering to the crowd. That was him going, hey, Germans, right? Huh? Am I right? So... The victory didn't go as exactly exactly as Bismarck wanted, but he was in a pretty good spot. He was everything had kind of played out exactly the way he wanted. You'll notice I'm talking a lot about Bismarck and not about Wilhelm I. Wilhelm I was one of those lovely emperors who knew exactly what he was capable of and delegated the things that he was bad at to more capable people. That's very unusual. Wilhelm was good at showing up to state affairs. He was good at receiving foreign dignitaries. He was good at acting as emissary to other countries in an official capacity. He was bad at politics, so he got Bismarck to do it for him. And in my mind, that's one of Wilhelm I's greatest accomplishments, is stepping back and letting a better man do the job, even though he wasn't born to it. Was Wilhelm good at warring? Was he good at military things? Yeah, he was a relatively capable officer, but he also had quite a few capable generals under him and was more than willing to listen to their counsel. You look at General Moltke during the uh, the war against Austria and his success in, in waging that campaign, that was them going, Moltke, you're the best guy for this job. Go do the job, please. That's what we pay you to do. Again, his, his best accomplishment was going, I'm in over my head, somebody else do this. That's a wonderful trait. It's, it's incredibly admirable, and it's not something you often see in emperors. No. Let's hope it's hereditary. <laughs> we'll see. We sure will see. <laughs> Apparently you know something about what's coming. What? Huh? Maybe a little. One of the first jobs that Bismarck had in front of him was figuring out what this new German state looked like. He opted for a bicameral parliament, which means two houses. And kind of went for a solution very similar to what you would see, say, in Britain, just a little bit closer to the original state of things. So there was a common house, which was called the Reichstag, and that's all elected members of parliament based on districts within the different states. And then there was the uh, Bundesrat, which was made up of, usually not directly, but emissaries from the various nobility within the new Germany. So Prussia would send a certain number of royal, royally appointed dignitaries. Bavaria would send a certain number. Smaller states would get only one, whereas Prussia would get a fairly large number. 
The reason I keep talking about Prussia is not just because the emperor came from Prussia and because Bismarck is kind of playing all of these puppet strings, but also Prussia itself makes up about about 40% of the new Germany. The rest of that being dispersed over 30-some-odd other states. They're very politically dominant. They're kind of the primary culture of Germany. Absolutely. And all those other cultures are close enough culturally that it's not usually a big problem. Generally. Super generally. You run into some issues. But in general, Prussian culture, they start doing a really good job of kind of making Prussian culture into German culture. I forgot to mention also that when Wilhelm I was made emperor, he made Bismarck chancellor of of the the government, which was basically really similar to the minister-president position in that he's kind of appointed by the emperor to sort of run things. So even though there's some sort of representation uh, in the parliament, there's definitely some fairly direct control by the emperor in even day-to-day matters. In particular, that would mean that the head of the legislative branch of government was appointed by the emperor? Yes. Okay. Yep. Which is very different than what you see in most democracies. Very, very different. And there's a reason for that. Bismarck got right on trying to unify Germans culturally as much as possible. He called this the Kulturkampf. Kampf meaning struggle. You may have heard that somewhere. Somewhere. First thing he did was compulsory schooling in the German language and standardized curricula across the entire country. He wanted them learning the same things. He wanted them learning specifically the same history. He wanted, but, and, and I mean, that, that sounds kind of sort of totalitarian, which in a kind of way it was, but it wasn't quite as despicable as it sounds. One of the other things he wanted to encourage was mobility between the German states. He wanted it to be so that if your father had to move for work for some reason, and you moved from one end of Germany to the other, and you walked into a state-run school, you could pick up right where you left off. He wanted to eliminate as many barriers to, to movement within the state as possible. He was somewhat anti-Polish. Just a little. A German? Uh-huh. Really? Keep in mind that Prussia constituted a lot of traditionally Polish areas, had a lot of traditionally Polish ethnic citizens. He wasn't a big fan. And it's hard to put that into context today. Racism against Poles? Yeah, I, I can't. I, I mean, just racism, racism in general. But remember, and I believe me, I'm, I'm not trying to forgive Bismarck's views or anything like that. But remember this ideal of the nation state. He's trying to create one government that represents one people as effectively as possible. And having a minority in that nation causes significant problems. And that's sort of where the nation state falls apart in every country ever. They need some sort of solution to this problem. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I won't go there. But essentially, yeah, it was it was a problem for him, and he needed to work something out now. I mean, he never went as far as deportation or anything like that, but he did make the German schooling mandatory. Even for the Poles. Yeah. He had no problems with them speaking two languages as long as one of them was German, because he wanted them all to identify as German. Okay, well, that's, I mean, that's... I don't want to give the impression that he was a very progressive man. No, but on the scale of these things, 
Um, he was doing okay for 1870. Edu- <laughs> mandatory education for the people he didn't like is, you know, <laughs> a good sight better than other things that happen later. That's true. That's true. Now, one of the biggest political problems that he faced, as well as cultural, was the fact that, as I mentioned at one point, Bavaria was strongly Catholic. Very, very Catholic, and culturally somewhat different than the rest of Germany as well. And while they were more than willing to sort of incorporate into Germany, they weren't too happy about some of the more strongly Prussian identity things that were being imposed on them. They actually created a political party called the Catholic Center Party. Bismarck didn't like the Catholics. He was strongly Protestant. And it's not quite as just sort of blindly prejudiced as it sounds. To give you some context, in 1968, the First Vatican Council occurred, and Pius IX instated the doctrine of papal infallibility. Nobody quite understood what that meant yet. We come back to the idea of sovereignty. Bismarck saw papal infallibility as a desperate grab by the, the, the Vatican, who, by the way, had just lost all of their little papal kingdoms to sort of the growing Italian unification movement, basically had like no longer had any political power. And a lot of what Vatican, Vatican I was dealing with was sort of this transition from being a ruling power that owned kingdoms and armies and things to a solely spiritual one. And he saw papal infallibility as sort of a last-ditch effort to be able to put their hands in international politics. And he was worried that somehow the Pope would be able to speak in an infallible manner and require German citizens to, say, rise up against the, the government. And he saw this as a threat to German sovereignty. So, I mean, the idea of Bismarck being worried about this doctrine isn't necessarily crazy, because he's got a baby state to take care of here, and this looks like a very real outside threat, and one that he can't really counter through diplomacy or even really through warfare, because what's he going to do? Kill the Pope? Don't, don't kill the Pope. It's bad for PR. Yep. Killing Pope, never good. Never good. So the idea of him being worried about that, I think, is fairly legitimate. It's fairly understandable. Yes, his own personal religious beliefs play into that, but... That's a fear that sticks around for a long time. Even when John F. Kennedy was being elected, there were worries about him being Catholic because they were worried that the president of the United States was beholden to a foreign power. That was a real thing that happened. Bismarck took it a little bit further, though. Oh, let's see. What did he do? In 1872, he broke all formal diplomatic relations with Pius IX. Okay. Yeah. He just didn't want messages going back and forth. He was sick of talking to the guy. He unfriended him. Blocked him on Facebook. In 1873, he put the May Laws into effect. It made the appointment and education of, of priests a matter of state. Put it completely under state control. You had to be approved by the German state to become a Catholic priest. Probably an easier sell when called the May Laws than mm-hmm. the religion subversion laws. Then there's the Congregations Law of 1875, which abolished religious orders altogether. So any any monks or nuns. So not not like priests. So you didn't just get rid of the, the, the priesthood, but to to belong to a nunnery or even to be be a Jesuit. He didn't want any Jesuits in the country in the country, like kicked them all out. But what about those monks that brew wine or beer? 
or beer. Yeah. What? What? I actually don't know what happened to them. Keep in mind, it's slight spoiler. These these laws didn't last that long, so it didn't put that much of a kink into the whole thing. But the congregation's law it also ended state subsidy uh, ended state subsidies to churches, and removed all religious protections from the German Constitution. He was serious about this. Apparently. And it's I, I bring this up because it's kind of interesting that. You know, we're talking about 1870, it sounds like they're kind of going in a modernizing direction and all of a sudden something that we consider as essential as freedom of religion trampled all over it. But again, he's doing it for this idea of unified Germany and for for state sovereignty and for a balanced Europe. We still hadn't quite got to the point where sovereignty was, in, sovereignty was invested in the people themselves. Exactly. It, he saw it definitely as his job to protect that for them. In 1878, the Catholic Center Party was starting to make it too politically difficult to keep hammering away at the Catholics. They're, they got something like one-third of the parliament, which makes it really, really hard to oppose what they want. Were there Was that because of these laws? Were, were there that many Catholics in the unified German state? It's a mix of both. In general, Germany, because it's not unified states and because of 30 years war, in general, states further south tended to be Catholic. States further north tended to be Protestant. So there's sort of a north-south divide in religion, but it's not, it's definitely not perfect by any means. Basically, when the 30 years war all shook out, whatever religion your ruler happened to be is what the state religion now is. That's the benefit of sovereignty. The ruler gets to decide. They're the decider. So, but as a, I mean, as a reaction to all these laws, Catholics who might not normally have voted with the Catholic Center Party are going, hang on, I need somebody representing me in Parliament to take care of this. Hence the rise of the Catholic Center Party. Okay. So, Bismarck backed off a little bit. There was a new pope. Leo VIII was elected in 1878. Managed to negotiate away a lot of the laws. He was just a lot more easygoing. Bismarck <laughs> liked him more. He was a cooler pope. Well, I mean, Pius IX had just been so hard line on all of this stuff that he was unwilling to make any concessions. Basically, basically all he needed was Leo VIII to go, listen, man, I'm not going to tell the Catholics to uprise against you. That's all he wanted, and Pius IX had never done that. Uh, I don't know, Bismarck. I mean, we'll we'll have to see. <laughs> you know, situations change. Yeah, essentially. And part of his part of his education, um, like outside of just the the Catholic Party stuff, part of his whole education thing, and and culture initiative in general, the Culture Conf, was this expansion of national history to include all Germanic states. So he made Prussian prominence a big part of the narrative. He constantly hammered home how great Prussia was but if something happened in an obscure little you know uh, duchy that had a population of 5,000 but it was noteworthy somehow historically he was willing to hold that up as a German achievement so basically he took 1870 and he just started building back through the years and saying no this is a German thing this is a German thing we accomplished this as a people we're doing pretty good because you have to remember Germany Germany is younger than Canada Germany is younger than Italy, which is younger than Canada. Germany is a new state. Wow. 
Germany is a very young state. And keep in mind, this is a little off, but keep in mind that from 1945, like for, for 45 years, it was again separated out. It hasn't had that much time to be a country. Total, not a lot at all. Something that I personally don't think about much. It seems like such a unified state, and a lot of this goes back to what Bismarck was doing with this culture conf. I think it also is easier for those of us born uh, at a time where, when we became aware of world politics, Germany was all back together again and everything was fine. I mean, I have a piece of the wall, but I don't remember it falling. No. It's it's easier to uh, to think of it as just, that's you know, Germany, the whole thing, that's Germany. The reason I have that piece of the wall is because it it grounds this piece of history that I know happened, but I personally have no reference for, where people even 10 years older than us probably saw that on TV. They probably remember when it happened. They probably saw the headlines, and we don't really have that. For us, Germany is just as united as somebody born, say, 20 years after this unification would have found Germany, because Bismarck was trying so hard to make Germany a thing, which it had never been before, and he was incredibly successful at that. Bismarck, stop trying to make Germany a thing. <laughs> but he was streets ahead. He made it happen. <laughs> he wasn't just effective culturally, though. He was also very effective politically and on the international scale. We will get to that right after this break. All right, we're back on HI101, and we were just talking about how... Bismarck was doing a bang-up job of trying to convince everyone that Germany had been a thing forever. Here with Dan McGinnis, by the way. Bismarck's success wasn't just cultural in nature. He was also one of the most skilled statesmen Europe saw in the 19th century, and just through sheer skill managed to basically keep Europe entirely peaceful, which is a really hard thing to do. And again, this comes back to his philosophy of realpolitik, of, of doing the best thing for everyone, but especially for Germany, even in the face of sort of personal beliefs, right? The, the first thing he did was try to maintain good alliances. Now, the thing about sovereign statehood is that you're not really a state until other states recognize you as such. A lot easier to do in 1870 than it is in, you know, today. Because you call up your cousin, you say, hey, man, can you get your country to recognize me and my state? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, they were all related. It was, it was just, it was crazy back then. All related. Anyways, much easier to get recognized, but a lot harder to find friends. And that's what Bismarck was really good at. He was good at promising things to people and making it into very, very attractive offers. It was things that were beneficial for Germany, but were also beneficial to the people he was proposing them to, which makes it really hard to turn down. He was absolutely convinced that the worst thing that could ever happen to Germany was to be, al uh, to be enemies with Russia and France at the same time. He said from the beginning that the thing that will destroy Germany is a two-front war. He decided it was better to have Russia as an ally than France, especially the way things had just gone with the Franco-Prussian War, and really worked to keep France kind of isolated in European politics, just altogether. 
France didn't like this, but France already didn't like Germany. Because all of a sudden, Germany is the most powerful power in in Europe. They're right in the middle. They've got a super strong army, a huge population. France is used to filling that role because they're used to like 300 states off to their east that don't really pose any sort of threat whatsoever. They're not loving this new arrangement. He kind of pushed a little too hard, though. On 18, in 1875, France almost went to war with Germany. They almost had enough to go to war. And Bismarck kind of realized that okay, you can, you can overdo this kind of thing. It was, it was the one failure that really taught him a lot about what he could pull off in terms of manipulating other European powers. Is it something worth getting into the details of? Not particularly. It was just, there was a lot of, there were a lot of anti-French alliances going on. There were some border disputes. It, It wasn't anything major, but it was enough that France got really fed up. They were already pretty, they were already looking for a reason after the Franco-Prussian War because their pride was hurt so badly, and this is only four years later. But the, the more important thing is Bismarck learned that some restraint is necessary. You need a delicate touch. Now, did he not want to go to war to, with France again because he'd already achieved his goal of a unified Germany? Yes. Bismarck once said preemptive war is like committing suicide for fear of death. That's a good line. Dang. Bismarck has a lot of good lines. Basically what he's saying is, I'm going to avoid war at all costs. If I don't have to fight a war, I'm not going to fight a war. War's bad for everybody. I will if I have to, but no. No thanks. Not for me. That's one thing that makes him really singular as a leader with this level of power. Often they go a little overboard on the whole war thing but he had very, very clear ideas of what war was for. War for him was a political tool, just like diplomacy, just like treaties, just like economics. It was one more tool for him. He created what they called the Reinsurance Treaty with Russia in 1887, which was basically a limited uh, mutual neutrality. If one of them went to war with somebody, the other one wouldn't get involved. Hmm. So not necessarily would help, but... No, wouldn't help. Wouldn't get involved at all. This worked well for both of them. They're kind of comfort level with each other at this point in time. They because were both, super close friends. Both of them were a little afraid of the other one, but they knew that they were relatively evenly matched and that a war would just go badly for both of them. They didn't want to get involved in that, and this was kind of formalizing it. This one wasn't super well known. They didn't really broadcast it but treaties like this you don't really broadcast you keep very very private created the dual alliance with austria-hungary in 1879 by this point in time the austrian throne and the hungarian throne had been combined into one empire this is the austria-hungary you hear about at the beginning of world war one so the dual alliance was a protection against russian attack so even after this this russian reinsurance treaty basically if austria was attacked by russia germany would help austria and vice versa. It was expanded to a triple alliance with Italy in 1882, again a mutual defense treaty, not just targeted at Russia at this point, but anyone. The three of them said, we've got each other's backs. You just said if Russia attacked Austria, Germany would help. Mm -hmm. But what about the alliance that Germany had just signed with Russia? The thing about the treaties that Bismarck signed was that he didn't want to use any of them. He was signing treaties as a way of making sure he didn't have to cash in any of his other treaties. And keeping them all kind of on the DL because 
by definition, some of them are completely yes, absolutely. And if something had gone wrong, he would have had to decide which one he wanted to honor. And I'm sure with Bismarck, it would have depended on the week and what he had had for breakfast. It's it's just he played such a, you know he danced on a knife's edge. It was so we what we have is the classic dating two women on the same night situation. <laughs> but he had a friend helping him to switch jackets. It was all good. He, uh, the, <laughs> I love that metaphor for Bismarck. It's actually really good. <laughs> Picture him doing it. No, he was very skilled. And I mean, he, he was, what he was really good at was convincing these people that he could be trusted. And the way he did that was by not going to war with France in 1875, by going, look, we're operating on rational grounds here. And what I do is what's best for Germany. And here's how this treaty with you is best for Germany. And here's how it's best for you. Let's make this happen. Good salesman. It's a very good salesman. One thing he really didn't want to get into, and this is another example of how flexible he could be, he really didn't want to get into the whole overseas colonies game. But the government wanted it, because all major powers have colonies, and we're a major power now, we need colonies. Everyone that's cool has some colonies. And the German people wanted it, for the exact same reasons. The, the British have colonies, why can't we? So they established a whole bunch of colonies in Africa and in uh, Samoa, you know, just around, as the European powers do. And that turned out well for Africans and Samoans in general. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they never profited. There were, there were two of the colonies that turned a profit eventually, years later. They were terrible for Germany, but Bismarck did it because to him... German people coming together over this issue was more important than the actual colonies themselves. This was German people going, listen, we're Germans, and Germany is a great power, right? And great powers do this, right? So if we do this, this just reinforces that we're a great power. Perfect. That's yeah, what yeah, he yeah. wants. Yeah, let's oppress some, oppress some indigenous people. <laughs> yeah, there is that whole issue. Boy, colonialism was bad. But they did it because that's what they felt like they had to do. And I mean, he was opposed to it on economic grounds, not on any sort of like moral grounds. <laughs> oh, I, I want to be very clear on that. So in the 1880s, Bismarck, the, the staunch imperialist, the incredibly conservative statesman, the, the enemy of socialists, hated socialists, hated socialism, thought it was the worst. In the 1880s, he created the world's first uh, welfare state. Ah. Huh. Did he? Why would he do that, Dan? Uh, uh, well, obviously it's because it was, was what was best for Germany. Absolutely. You know how? It was taking the, uh, it was taking the air out of the uh, socialists' wings. <laughs> it was just, well, if, if we give them all of these things they're asking for, then they don't have to go to the socialists anymore. We're giving it to them. That is literally the reason he created the world's first welfare state. Yeah. <laughs> Realpolitik is sweet. Oh, it's it's so good sometimes. And and I mean, honestly, it's it's yielding really good results for Germany at this point in time. Pragmatism. It's hey. amazing how well it works. So he instituted things like safe working conditions, limiting work hours, restrictions on work for children, which I guess is probably a good idea. Various types of insurance, medical, disability, pension. <laughs> In the 1880s, this was a big thing. 
this is this is when you still have like American five year olds working in the factories and getting arms ripped off and stayed that way for the next half century. Yep. No, it was a big deal, and it was all to stick it to the to the socialists. <laughs> Take that. Have everything you want. He was he was actually really taking a hard run at the socialists at the in the 1880s, but in 1888 Wilhelm I died. Wilhelm's son Friedrich III, when he ascended to the throne, already had terminal throat cancer. Oh. He was German emperor for 99 days. He spent that entire time fighting the cancer. Did he have a wife? A British wife. Did they both really respect Victoria's first husband? Well, in fact, uh, the wife was the daughter of Victoria. Then, then they probably had a pretty solid respect for Victoria's husband. Absolutely. Yeah. I expect they liked Albert. Okay, mm-hmm. I kind of know some stuff about this guy, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, am, not... I am super, super duper sad that uh, he only got to be emperor for 99 days. It's it's unfortunate that he ended up being a footnote, but I, I, I like his... That's a bad way to start this. I like his story in that it kind of reminds you that these people that you read about in the history books, they're just regular people, and sometimes something like throat cancer will throw them off just as it would anyone else. They are not immortal. They're not gods. They're just they're just people who happen to have been born into the right family. Yep. This was known as the year of the three emperors, for obvious reasons. Friedrich III's son, Wilhelm II, came into power. Before you get into him, I do highly recommend looking into Friedrich III. He had plans to modernize and revolutionize a whole bunch of things. I'm sure he did. I don't know a lot of things about him. I, I would be interested in reading more. Obviously, in terms of the scope of what we're talking about today, he he warrants one point on my page. Yeah. Which is sad, but... So sad. He, he had plans, man. I look forward to looking into that. Thank might you. have a contentious statement coming from, from me, but... Speculation is difficult. Things would have been different. Yep, because instead we got Wilhelm II, and he was kind of a jerk. That's not fair. He wasn't a jerk. He was just kind of an idiot. Yeah, that's more fair. Wilhelm II... Wilhelm II was not cut out for rule. Let's put it that way. There are a lot of, a lot of people theorize as to why. I don't think it matters, personally. But it, it's fun to speculate on it. It just, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Well, he had a he had a crippled left arm, and uh, a lot of people speculate that he was very coddled as a child. But his mother was very insistent that he be able to do everything that a young emperor should be able to do, and so he got a combination of people protecting him from the w- real world and insistence that he could do anything he ever wanted because he is the emperor and all he has to do is ask and people will make it happen for him no matter how difficult. Was he the son of Friedrich III? Yes. Okay. So he was Wilhelm I's grandson. Now, Friedrich III and his wife weren't actually big fans of Bismarck and they tried and so Bismarck tried to kind of separate Wilhelm II from them a little bit in terms of influence. When when Wilhelm II comes to power, he's twenty nine. Like he's not he's not a boy. He's not 
he should he should be old enough that with his life he should have the tools he needs to start running an empire. Mm-hmm. As someone almost that age, that thought terrifies me. But when you're groomed for it from from birth, you you have those tools. You're ready to go. Yeah, and have a lot of very competent people to help you along the way. Wilhelm II did not take well to this. He really disliked Bismarck. He resented his his attempts to separate him influentially from his parents. He felt that because he grew up in a Germany that was so strong, he felt like, why not more? He felt that, I mean, he, he wanted expansionism. He may have been goaded by advisors, we're not sure, but he really wanted to make a bigger Germany. He wanted to really stick it to the other powers. And he was sort of a, I don't mean this derogatorily, but... He was a simple enough guy in his world outlook that he saw that as basically being as easy as going to war with them. Why not? We'll just beat them and then we'll be the best. Bismarck's been playing this game, this this massive chess game with all of Europe for the past 20 years. And he's going, no, that's not how you do this. What are you doing, kid? Stop messing with my board. He's He's been Chancellor of Germany for since 1871 and he's been working in this general role in prussia since 1862 he's seen a few things when does wilhelm ii descend? in 1888 long time yeah they clashed a lot over a lot of different issues and the thing that i admire most about bismarck is that he didn't just turn this into a giant power struggle he tried really hard to explain to Wilhelm why he was trying to do the things he was doing. He tried really hard to kind of put his cards on the table and say, listen, I'm being friendly towards this person because we need him for X, Y, Z, and he will help us with A, B, C. And Wilhelm just didn't want it. He didn't want to hear about it. He felt like he had to be involved in every single aspect of ruling, unlike his grandfather, who was very good at staying out of it. And it kind of all came to a head when there was this uh, dispute between a coal miner union and the government. Bismarck basically wanted to just steamroll them <laughs> because they're socialists. Oh, okay. Well, it, they, can, they were trying they be trapped to in the mine. <laughs> they were they were unionizing, but they were unionizing in a way that was starting to kind of overstep things in his mind. Today, it would probably be seen as fairly reasonable. Wilhelm II looked at it, and he also saw it as reasonable and decided to take the coal miners' side to the point of going to the site of the protests. The emperor did. The emperor did. Yep. He was the emperor, and he did this. Uh, It's hard to wrap your head around. Probably didn't help that he had his grandfather's name. Yeah, exactly. Some comparisons may occur. Bismarck resigned. He couldn't handle it anymore he was basically forced to resign by Wilhelm II he said listen I'm not listening to you anymore I'm not doing what you say I'm going to override anything you do and Bismarck said fine there's nothing I can do about this and he resigned because he's a man who knows when he's beaten even after that he continued to go to Wilhelm from time to time and try and give him advice and you could make such a movie out of this oh it would be an incredible movie I would love to watch a movie about Bismarck I'm sure there are very good German ones that we're just not familiar with <laughs> in 1897 he went to Wilhelm and he told him listen the way that you're running things this is sustainable you can keep this up 
as long as you've got the officers you have in command right now in command, because these are the men who served under your grandfather, and I know they're competent men, and they will keep you from getting into trouble. As soon as you lose these officers, you can't keep doing this, or Germany will crumble. He also told him something, and I actually wrote it down because it's, it's an interesting quote. He said, Jena came 20 years after the death of Frederick the Great. The crash will come 20 years after my departure if things go on like this. Jena was one of the two battles that the Holy Roman Empire lost to Napoleon. 20 years to the month after the death of Frederick the Great, who was Wilhelm's ancestor, who had been a king of Prussia and a very well-regarded one. Mm. He said this in July 1898. He died a few months later. 20 years to the month after his death, Wilhelm II was forced to resign at the end of World War I. He abdicated the throne, effectively ending that epoch of German empire. This is what people refer to as the Second Reich when they talk about the Third Reich being the Nazis. The Second Reich was from 1871 to 1918. And fell 20 years after. After the death of Bismarck. And thus Bismarck drops the mic from beyond the grave. It's incredible. Post-Bismarck Germany just turned into a huge mess. He basically, Wilhelm II managed to basically undo everything good Bismarck had done. Let's run down those. I'd just like to note, he loved boats. Wilhelm II did. He got himself made honorary admiral in most of the navies of Europe. (laughs) Honorary admiral? Keep in mind, he was a grandson, he was a grandson of Victoria. Mm Mm-hmm. Every monarch in Europe was related to him by no more than first cousin, either by marriage or by blood. Yeah. So he had a habit of sailing up to British battleships in his British admiral uniform and demanding to inspect them. (laughs) Now, did he do this during the war? I think they didn't let him after, like, during the war. I'm pretty sure they stopped letting him. But he, that's, that's the thing that's, like, it's such a good distillation of Wilhelm II. This is the kind this is the kind of thing that occupied his time. This man is a caricature. He is. He should never have been running a country. I I'm, he should have been the guy building model train sets in his basement. He would have been really good at that and maybe managing a small retail store on the side. <laughs> he would have been perfect for that. He's he's the poster child of what's wrong with inherited nobility. He he really really is. He was more willing to negotiate with, say, socialists or, say, with the Catholic Center Party, which gave him a little bit of strength. But, I mean, those are two tiny points positive to, like, dozens of negative. Uh, to, to essentially firing Bismarck, the greatest statesman to have lived in modern times. They could have had another eight years of Bismarck. He would have kept serving. Yeah. He was in his 80s when he died. He would have served right up until his last breath. And Germany would have been better for it. It's hard to speculate, but that one I'm willing to put a little bit of money on. Yep. He really wanted to be like Britain. He sort of envied them and despised them at the same time. It's sort of a weird relationship that he had with them. Uh, He didn't renew the reinsurance treaty with Russia. He felt like his relationship with Russia was good enough. Hmm. He's he's cool with the Tsar. Russia, as a consequence, kind of fell away from their friendship with... uh, with Germany. In 1898, he appointed a new secretary of the Navy named Alfred von Tirpitz. Tirpitz's main goal in life was to build a bigger navy than Britain's. 
Bigger Navy than Britons. Bigger Navy than Britons. I should note that the Chancellorship after um, Bismarck, Bismarck served for ages as Chancellor, turned into a string of practically, like, I, I, I can't Nobody's. name, yeah, I, I can think of one name of another Chancellor, and it was the guy right after Bismarck, and it's because he was a terrible replacement for Bismarck. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were, they were meaningless. You Wilhelm get- II did all the work of the Chancellor in the Chancellor's place, badly. You gotta sympathize with Bismarck's successor, though. I mean, fair of of all the people to follow. It, yeah, it's a, it's incredibly unfair, but you know that's the way it is. A book by a guy named Alfred Thayer Mahan called "The Influence of Sea Power Upon History" was translated into German and distributed to the masses. It was about how important it is to build giant battleships in order to be a world power. They were big on the navy. Uh, they and they they like they really started production on this navy and it made everyone super nervous because it was sort of established that britain is the guy with the navy they do the naval things you don't challenge britain it's kind of the balance it's kind of the balance and you don't want to upset that balance a thing that bismarck understood very very well wilhelm ii openly supported the boers in the boer war in 1900 against the british how did that turn out not so great turn out well during the Boxer Rebellion, he felt that the German soldiers should fall upon the Chinese like Huns, like mm. their like their ancestors, the Huns. <laughs> this is how you get the the propaganda calling Germans Huns during the First World War. Uh, it came from this statement that he said, which was in super bad taste. <laughs> to put it lightly, even, even before racism was a thing. Even <sighs> in nineteen oh four. There was an agreement called the Entente Cordiale between Britain and France against Germany. If Germany keeps on like this, let's let's watch each other's back. By 1914, Austria-Hungary was Germany's only remaining ally in Europe. Spoilers, 1914 is the year that World War I started. That's where we're going to end, because as much as I would love to get into the Great War, we simply don't have time. But in the course of 24... 26 years, Wilhelm systematically alienated every one of Germany's allies. Every single one. The thing that's amazing about the unification of Germany is how short-lived it was, how dependent on one man it was, how badly it fell apart at the end. And yet through all of that, was really, really successful at establishing a German identity. To the point that we talk about Germans and Germany for, for centuries before there was any such thing. That's that's some good marketing. It was incredibly well done. Its successes and failures are all sort of rooted in this 19th century concept of the nation state and what that should mean, what it should mean to have sovereign power over a territory, what it should mean to have a united nation within one state, and how nation states should relate to one another, relate to one another to create a peaceful balance between the great powers. It was the best failed experiment that Europe had to put forward in the 19th century. I don't normally subscribe to the whole great man uh, theory of history, this idea that one person shapes the course of all of humanity. But there are definitely a few notable exceptions, and Bismarck goes on my list, because without that man at the reins, I would be surprised if we would have anything close to the united germany that we have today he made it all happen himself it's possible somebody else could have done it 
but he did it so masterfully and changed so much not about not just about war and not just about nation building but about politics and about diplomacy that our world would would look completely different had there been no no Bismarck so that's the story of the unification of Germany in the 1870s and several decades on either side it's quite the ride mm-hmm. anything that comes to mind in the way of final questions or no that's that's a pretty clear picture I, I can't think of anything that that uh, that is a gap in in putting it together that's good well thank you so much for coming on the program today with me thank you for having me While the empire created under Bismarck's careful watch was by most measures completely dismantled at the end of the First World War, his main effort of Kulturkampf, creating a unified German culture, was so successful that the Germany we know today as a major power is a direct result of his legacy. An understanding of the German navigation through the 19th century is critical to understanding both the tumultuous 20th century and the world we live in today. On the next episode of HI 101, we'll be taking a look at how exactly a narrow band of colonies on the east coast of North America soon came to stretch across the entire continent to become the United States we know today. You'll see that episode on September 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.